Good morning. You know, in January of 2015, Serena Williams, the great tennis player, was playing Flavia Panetta in the Hopman Cup in Perth, Australia. And after losing the first set 6-0, she decided something needed to change. She felt like she needed to wake up. She needed a pick-me-up. So she called the ball girl over and asked her to go get her a shot of espresso. And she did. And in the middle of the match, Serena downed a shot of espresso and went on to win the match in the third set. Afterwards, she was asked about it, and she said, you know, I didn't even know if it was legal, but she said, I felt like something needed to change. I needed some sort of pick-me-up. And so the ball girl brought her that. She drank it, and apparently it helped. A tennis match was halted momentarily so that Serena Williams could take a shot of espresso. You think about that. I totally get it. You probably do too. My day doesn't start without a cup of coffee. The coffee maker in the offices is programmed to start working at 545 so that when I get here at 6 o'clock, it's ready to go and I'm ready to drink it. I don't like to wait on my coffee. My day doesn't get started until I've had my coffee, and sometimes in the afternoon I have to take another cup or two because, I don't know about you, but after lunch I start a sort of a downward slide, and I need something to kind of pick me up. I don't know if it's caffeine. I don't know if it's the, the habit. I don't know if it's the flavor. I don't know if it's all the above, but I have to have it. So much so that last week I went to get blood drawn for my annual physical, and as they were pulling it the syringe up, I could see a, br a brownish tint to the blood. I, I, you know you have a problem when that happens. I'm sure I'm not the only one. I read an article recently about the benefits of coffee. I probably should have scrolled down to the bottom to see if it was written by Charles Folgers or Maxwell House, but uh, it talked about how, you know, drinking coffee can, you know, help reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes. It can help with, uh, you know, curbing uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. It can help you be a better preacher. <laughs> Some of you are saying drink up, right? You need all the help you can get. No, I get it, and you probably do too. You understand how a tennis match could be stopped because Serena needed some, some espresso. I understand that. I need it as a pick-me-up. Maybe you do as well. And I'm always, I've always been a huge fan of coffee, and I've always been a huge fan of prayer as well. And so as I was putting together our sermon series for the year and looking at our schedule, I thought, we need a sermon series on prayer. I hadn't spoken on prayer in a while, and so how do you after 13 years at one place, take a topic like prayer and make it interesting and preach it a little differently than maybe you have before and engage the listener. And uh, I started thinking about that and thinking about, you know, how am I going to tackle this broad subject? Because there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of ins and outs when it comes to prayer. And so I'm staring at my computer at my desk with my coffee. I take a drink, I look at the computer, I take a drink, I look at the computer, and then it kind of hit me. Why don't I combine the two? You ever thought about espresso being linked to prayer? You ever thought about espresso being a good illustration for prayer? What is espresso? Do you know? Well, espresso is forcing water through coffee beans, finely ground beans, and extracting it in concentrated amounts. And the result is full flavor and a powerful punch. That's what prayer is. That's what I hope your prayer life is, full of flavor and packing a powerful 
punch. So that is the basis for this series. You still with me? That's the basis. I want to begin this series this morning by looking at prayer as a pick-me-up. And let's start in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Just as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus so that you would instruct certain people not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to useless speculation rather than advance the plan of God, which is by faith. So I urge you now, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Some people have strayed from these things and have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Timothy had a mess on his hands, right? That's really what you need to see first and foremost from this passage. That's the overarching theme, is that Timothy had a mess on his hands, and he's getting a debriefing from Paul, and Paul's telling him, you know, it's not good. The news isn't good. There was disarray, division, disorder, debauchery within the church at Ephesus, and Paul gives instruction to Timothy on how to handle these big D's, right? Timothy, here's what you are to do. Here's how you bring order to the disorder. Here's how you unite what has been untied. Here's how you dis the disarray. Look at verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So, Timothy, you're going to confront some things that are not desirable. You may even have to purge the church a little bit, like Paul had to do with Alexander and Hymenaeus. And Paul understands that the dirty work of the church can take quite a toll on ministers. So he tells him to keep fighting the good fight, remain steadfast, stay focused. And then notice chapter 2. Remember, we've talked about this before. The original manuscripts didn't have chapter breaks and verses, so this is a continuation of thought. And notice what Paul says. First of all, then, I urge that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made in behalf of all people, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed as a preacher and as an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and dispute. What's the first thing you do when you encounter a messy church? What's the first thing you do when you're dealing with messy people in a messy church? Well, you create a brand new sleek website, right? Or you, uh, you rebrand and you come up with a new church logo. Or you change the worship style to be more contemporary, right? That's the first thing you do. No. Did you catch it? 
What does Paul tell him? The first thing you need to do, Timothy, to deal with the disorder and the disarray and the division and the debauchery, what's the first thing you need to do? You need to hit your knees. You need to pray. Because every battle you face in life is going to be fought on your knees. At least it should be, right? Every battle we face in life should be fought on our knees. Prayer must be a priority because of every battle we face. We fight it on our knees. You know, before any sporting event in America, the national anthem is played. Baseball game, football game, basketball game, they play the national anthem. This is a ritual. It is a habit that has nothing to do with the game whatsoever. It doesn't affect the outcome of the game one bit. It doesn't influence the game one bit. It's a tradition, right? And some people see prayer the same way. It is a ritual. It is a habit. It is a tradition that doesn't affect the game of life in any way, shape, or form. And that's truly disheartening. Because when we talk about prayer, the thesis statement for this series And you may want to write this down, write it in your notes, but also write it on your heart. The thesis statement for this entire series, the foundational statement for all of it is this. Prayer is not an event. Prayer is a lifestyle. It's not what you do. It is who you are at your core. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul writes these words, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. If the command here were to breathe without ceasing, we would understand the meaning and magnitude of that. Well, prayer is spiritual breathing. It keeps you alive spiritually. You see, there's more to prayer than dropping to your knees and folding your hands and closing your eyes and moving your lips. There's way more to it than that. It's more than reciting some churchy or pious lines. That's often what we do when it comes to prayer. It's often what we do when we say grace before the meal, right? Oh, come on. I'm not the only one. When we pray for our food, it's typically an add-on, isn't it? It's typically something that's habitual or ritual, and that's okay. I mean, a lot of the things that we do habitually or ritualistically are good things. I'm not saying that's not. But oftentimes, it's not our heart that's engaged in that moment. It's our stomach, right? And so we pray for the food so that we can get to eating. And so often, we look at prayer in general that way, that it's just an addendum. It's just something that we do. We don't really put a lot of thought or effort into it. It's just, it's an add-on that doesn't affect the game of life in any way, shape, or form. It reminds me of a husband and wife that were at a party, and they were talking, and the subject of marriage came up. And the, uh, the, the husband said, oh, we don't have any problems in our marriage. And people were, you know, interested. Well, why is that? Why don't you have problems in your marriage? And the man said, well, my wife was a communications major, and I was a theater arts major. And so she communicates very well, and I act like I'm listening. <laughs> when it comes to prayer, communication is key. I read a study the other day that talked about the longer couples are married, the less they communicate. So the study focused on married people and how they communicate or how much they communicate over a one-hour meal. I don't know who takes an hour to eat, but anyway, that was the study. And the results showed that the couples who are dating chat for 50 minutes out of the hour. But as soon as they get married, the downward trend kicks in. So immediately after marriage, the talking drops to 40 minutes of the hour. 
20 years into marriage, the average couple talks for 21 minutes during the hour. 30 years in, the conversation takes up 16 minutes of the hour. And 50 years of marital bliss shows that the average conversation between married couples is about three minutes in an hour. That's like 150 words or less. Communication is key. Hopefully you understand where I'm going with this. The most important relationship that you will ever foster in your life is your relationship with God. And thanks be to God that he has given us an avenue for us to communicate with him. He communicates through his word, through creation. We communicate with him through prayer. But if you don't take advantage of that opportunity, then the relationship suffers. Prayer is relational. And Jesus, as you would expect, perfectly exemplifies this. Luke chapter 5, beginning of verse 12 reads, While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he reached out with his hand, and he touched him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he ordered him to tell no one, saying, But go and show yourself to the priest, and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip off into the wilderness and pray. I love how that last verse is just kind of tacked on at the end. But it's not random. There's great meaning and magnitude in that last verse. It shows us that Jesus often exercised crowd control, didn't he? He often pressed the pause button on life and got away, escaping the crowds, turning off the white noise, and just being alone with the Heavenly Father. Which brings up the question, if Jesus needed regular time alone to communicate with God, then how much more do we, right? So prayer is relational. But here's something else that prayer is. Prayer is a passport. You know what a passport is? A little booklet that gives you permission to leave this country and go to another one? Prayer is a passport because it allows you to change locations. You live in the physical, but through prayer you connect with the spiritual, right? Prayer is a passport that allows us to leave one setting and go to another. You can access the divine. The model prayer is given by Jesus shows us this. Our Lord said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation. Jesus says to get help with the physical, then enter the spiritual. Tap into the divine. Now, just before this model prayer, the disciples had come to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, that's interesting. Had they never prayed before? You know, the three major tenets of the Jewish faith include one of them is prayer. I have no doubt they had prayed before. They hadn't prayed like this, though. Not like Jesus was praying. They saw something different in Jesus' prayer life that they wanted. They saw a relationship, I believe. I think they saw Jesus connecting with the Father, and they said, I want that. And so Jesus tells them, prayer is a passport. It allows you to leave one location and go to another. It allows you to leave the physical and access the divine, right? So it's relational. It's a passport. But you've got to pray expectantly as well. Do you expect things to happen when you pray? Or do you just go through the ritual and the routine of it? 
It's like a group of citizens in a small West Texas community up in the panhandle. Things were getting dire. They hadn't had rain in several months. They needed it to rain. And so they all gathered in the town square and they began to pray for rain. But nothing happened until one little boy showed up. And he began praying for rain. And suddenly, clouds formed, thunder starts clapping, and it's a downpour. The rain that the, adult, the adults had prayed so much for, now this little boy comes up and prays for it, and all of a sudden, it's, it's just a, a torrential downpour. What was the difference? Why did the, the prayers of the adults not get through? Why, why, didn't it, why didn't it cause it to rain? Yet this little boy comes up, and he prays, and it rains. What was the difference? Now the little boy showed up with an umbrella. Do you expect what you pray for? Now, obviously your prayer may not get answered in the way that you would like. The answer may be no. The answer may be not yet. The answer may be wait. But do you expect what you pray for? Notice what is written in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous man, when it brought about, can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Is anyone suffering? I could ask that question this morning. Anyone here suffering? Probably. Then you must pray. You must. You must pray. And if the congregation knows that you're suffering, they must pray as well. Is anyone here cheerful? I could ask that of you, right? Is anyone here cheerful? Yeah, absolutely. Then you need to sing. Cheerful people sing. So if you're in pain, pray. If you're cheerful, sing. Either way, you're communicating with God. Is anyone here sick? can ask that question of you. Is anyone sick? Understand, in the context here, James is not talking about necessarily physical sickness, although it can mean that. He's talking more of being worn out and, and tired and weary. That's the sickness being talked about here. Anybody here that's tired or worn out or weary? I mean, let's just say, anybody here that's sick? Yeah, have you seen our prayer list? Rather lengthy. So we are to pray. We're to pray for ourselves. We are to pray for one another. If you see your brother or sister that is dealing with sickness, you are to pray for them. Sometimes you can't do it on your own. Sometimes you need someone to carry you. You need more than you. You need others like the elders to pray on your behalf. I love that our shepherds more than once have answered a request. We've had people come to them, members of our congregation come to them and say, could you anoint us with oil and pray for us? And our elders have done that. Nice to have an elder that's a pharmacist. You can come up with some, some oil to anoint them with and pray for them. Is anyone here suffering? 
Is anyone here sick? Is anyone here cheerful? Is anyone here dealing with something? James says, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, then they will be forgiven him. When you are restoring something, you bring it back to its original intent or its original state. And as we all know, not everyone gets well physically. We've all prayed for someone to get well, and unfortunately they passed on. But James is not saying here that every time you pray for someone who is sick, they immediately get better. He's not doing like some preachers do today. There are some preachers today who make promises that God doesn't keep. That's not what James is doing. James is saying, you pray for the weariness, you pray for the tiredness, and you wait. Are you worn out? Are you tired? Are you weak? God is with you. And live or die, God will restore because he is making all things new. And although it's hard to wait for full restoration, although the process can be arduous and difficult and filled with hurt and heartache, God will come through with his promise because anything God promises, you can take to the bank. Hope is on the horizon. Wait expectantly because God is a God of restoration. Maybe you're worn out this morning. James says, confess. Maybe you're worn out by sin. Confess your sins to one another. Find someone to confess your sins to. And you say, well, but what about, what about those who may gossip about me? What if I share my sin with them and they go and they slander me and they share it with others? Well, then don't confess to them. I'm not going to confess to people that I know don't have my best interest at heart. If this was a church that I felt like you couldn't confess to, I'd tell you to go somewhere else. Confess to people who will pray for you, not people who will pray on you. Find people you can confess to that will hold you accountable. If you're afraid that they'll share it with someone else, you're afraid you can't trust them, don't share it with them. James says, confess to one another. We all need that person that we can confess to and that we know will pray for us. Then James says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Effective here in the Greek is the word energeo. It's where we get our word energy or energized. It refers to putting forth power or being operative. It can simply mean work. Work at prayer. Colossians 4, 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. How often do you labor in prayer? Let me ask it this way. How much... Do you want what you pray for? Do you really want your kids to be spiritually strong? Do you really want that person you're praying for to be healed of their sickness? Do you really, really want God to make you a better person? Do you really want to be forgiven of those sins? Do you really want God to rid your heart of all impurity? Because if you really want those things, you're going to labor earnestly. You're going to agonize. You're going to be fervent. Incidentally, the word fervent in the Greek is the word agonizomai, and it means to agonize. You ever thought about prayer as agony? It can be, can't it? Prayer isn't always easy. It's not some simple formula that fixes everything. Prayer can be hard. It can be difficult. It can hurt, but it's in our agony that we often do our best praying, isn't it? Because an energized, fervent prayer is usually the most focused and intense prayer that we can pray. I love this. 
When James wrote, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, he looked to the prophet Elijah. He used Israel's greatest non-literary prophet as his example. It goes back to Deuteronomy when God promised that as long as the people were faithful, he would make it rain. But as soon as they were unfaithful, he would cause it not to rain. Elijah, a faithful prophet of God, prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't. Think about what that means. How many times have you heard someone come up here and pray for our nation, to pray for our country? Great prayer. We need to do that. We need to do that publicly. We need to do that privately. I'm not diminishing that at all. But how many times have you heard somebody come up here and say, God, punish our nation? Punish us. Judge us because we're not living right. We're not doing right. That's what Elijah's doing. He's not, a, he's not praying for national comfort. He's praying, God, punish us. We are a horrific people. We need to be punished. Rain down your judgment. Cause it not to rain so that there will be a famine so that maybe people will come back into compliance. James says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And James describes Elijah as a man with a nature like ours. Do you know what that means? Here's what that means. Elijah was a regular dude. Just a regular dude that God used as a tool or an instrument, a regular guy who had a relationship with God and who worked at prayer. You know, espresso is a drink that requires a lot of patience, requires some hard work. But the end result in my mind, and you can disagree with this, but you're wrong, the end result is a wonderful, full-body, flavorful drink, at least to me. But it takes time. It takes time to make a good espresso. Espresso is as much a process as a product. And by the way, I'm advocating for espresso machines before you walk in so everybody stays awake. Prayer is the same way. Prayer is a process. It takes patience. But the result is full flavor. It's bold and it's rich and it's satisfying. But you got to be willing to put in the time and the effort if you're going to get the tasty benefits. You know, you can drive down Buffalo Gap Road and you can drive by Big Country Coffee or Starbucks and you'll see a line, usually any time of day, wrapped around the building. People in the drive-thru wrapped around the building all the way to the road. Sometimes traffic is stopping up in the left lane because people are trying to turn in to Starbucks. They need their coffee. And they will pay obscene amounts of money just to get that cup of coffee, to give themselves a pick-me-up. For many people, it's the way they start their day. Nothing really happens until they have their cup of coffee. For some, it's a, it's a midday routine, but it's a routine. It's a habit. For them, they need it. It's their primary pick-me-up. And I, I pray that prayer is our primary pick-me-up as well. I pray that it is a priority for you. That not only is it a priority, that it is a lifestyle. So let's espresso our hearts with venti prayers to the great barista in the sky. Sorry, that was horrible, wasn't it? How about this? How about we do this? Just breathe. Just breathe. Prayer is spiritual breathing. It keeps us alive spiritually. Just breathe. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we cannot thank you enough for this family, 
for what's happening here at Oldham Lane. And God, it's because of prayer. May we be a praying church. May we be a praying people. And God, help us to keep the lines of communication open. I pray that this congregation will make prayer a priority, a lifestyle, that it will be our defining mark. God, we pray that you use us, that we can be a useful instrument for you. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. People ask me sometimes, they say, uh, somebody the other day, they said, I drive by your church on, on Sunday morning, and uh, hey, there's a lot of cars there. What are y'all doing? I said, we're praying. I firmly believe that the great things that are happening here at Oldham Lane are because of prayer. Not just my prayer, but your prayer. Every Thursday morning, as the sun is coming up, I, I walk around this campus and I pray for our elders. I pray for our staff. I pray for you, many of you individually. And I think that goes a long way. I certainly think it goes a long way when you pray for us as well. Pray for your preacher. Pray for your elders. Pray for your youth minister. Pray, pray for the song leaders. Pray for everybody here, the sick, all the folks here. And within that prayer, pray that we can be the church that God wants us to be, right? If you need prayer this morning, if we can pray with you, if we can help you in some way, if, if you want to study the Bible with someone, if you want to learn how to be a part of this family, if you want to take the next step in faith and be baptized, then certainly we can take care of that as well. This is a loving family. This is a praying family. If we can help you, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.